I hear what you're saying. I mean, it would be nice to be able to harness, you know, that creativity and use it, you know, within the confines, I should probably confines the wrong word, within the confines of the, of the law, of a law firm, because within the jail cell (laughs) of the law firm, that's not what I said. Welcome to the Geek in Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Well, Marlene, congratulations on being recognized by the ABA's Legal Technology Resource Center as one of the Women of Legal Tech 2022. I have to say, that's a heck of a list, including we had five, I think, prior guests to the podcast. So congrats. Thank you very much. It was really quite an honor to be included with this group of amazing, amazing mm-hmm. women. And and you know, I know we've had we've had five, but I guess we got to get all the rest of them on yeah. too. Yeah. Well, I was telling you that. Uh, well, at least that gives us a, a checklist of eleven more that we can that we can bring <laughs> on. <laughs> That's right. That's uh, right. Well, congratulations and well well deserved. Thank you. So today's guest talks about how important it is to have a network of professional peers and to maintain those relationships. In fact, it was our common relationship with former guest Richard Hsu that sparked our being able to even get author Adam Pascarella on the show. That's right. So Adam has a new book out where he interviews 15 people who were former legal practitioners or law school grads and who went on to have careers outside the traditional legal industry. Richard Hsu and our good friend from all the way back in episode four, uh, I yell at Robinson. Yeah, that was a while ago. It was. Uh, they're both in the book, along with folks like ESPN's Jay Bylas, uh, Anthony the Mooch Scaramucci, <laughs> and other writers, artists, business folks, and more. We talk about why Adam decided to write the book and the effect it had on him as he started his own business in capital management. So stick around for that. But first up, we have another Legal Week crystal ball question. This time we talk with Michael Burns, Chief Revenue Officer at Steno, about what he sees for the near future in the legal industry. My name is Michael Burns. I'm Chief Revenue Officer at Steno. We are a a legal technology company focusing on litigation support services. So we provide mostly court reporting and deposition services to uh, firms across the country. I've been with the firm for... Oh, a while now. I think uh, I'm coming up on 70 days. Uh, So so I'm I'm an expert. Exactly. (laughs) A a tried and true veteran. Uh, Yeah, but I've been in and around legal tech for the better part of 20 years. Um, So I've seen a lot of change in this business, mostly for the good, I would say. Uh, Not not 100%, but mostly for the good. Um, Yeah. And uh, to your question, get my crystal ball out and see see where things are going. So... I think in general, across the the ecosystem, legal is the last bastion of the non-digitally transformed, right? Uh, So uh, if we think about in-house, if we think about uh, law firms, the advantages that other industries or other corporate departments have taken advantage of as it pertains to automation uh, really haven't been reaped uh, by those uh, those segments okay. um, so I, I we, we obviously are seeing the pendulum you know swing towards automation and towards uh, technology uh, I think we haven't seen you know the, the midpoint of the fulcrum yet I, I think we're, we're gonna see a lot a lot of swing and it should accelerate for us 
Uh, at Steno, uh, a lot of what we're focused on as, as not just a court reporting agency, but also a tech company, uh, is identifying ways that we can integrate our services into the workflows of our customers. So we're you know, very focused on, uh, on looking at partnerships with matter management or case management uh, vendors uh, to actually get the litigation services uh, part of uh, an attorney or a paralegal or a legal secretary's workflow automated, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we just launched uh, um, uh, an integration with Litify, for instance, where somebody could literally, in their case management platform, hit a button and information on the case goes out through API to our back end uh, and you're able to schedule a deposition uh, seamlessly without leaving the workflow. So I think that's where things are, are going to be going over the next two to five years as it pertains to legal services and especially litigation services. Right. How, do you, how do you feel your clients are sort of accepting that, like in terms of this move towards automation? I, adoption is slow uh, uh, among <laughs> attorneys. Um, Wait, uh, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Have we heard of this? this uh, Breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of excitement tempered by trepidation right, yeah. um, across, across everybody in the industry. There's always going to be early adopters, right? And the early adopters uh, are are all in. They they blaze the trail, uh, and we need to show wins, right? Um, so what we're focused on is trying to enable our customers who are starting to take advantage of this type of technology, right? Really be there for them, provide great customer success, uh, make sure that we surround them with enablement uh, to be able to take advantage of of what it is that we're offering, and and over time, right? We'll, we'll see adoption uh, increase. Uh, I'm sure, like we have with you know e-discovery. 15 years ago, right? right. You know, that, that was new once too. That's true. Right. All right. Well, thanks for dropping by. And cool. Talk to yeah. You. Anytime. Thanks, guys. I like how Michael was being polite when he referred to Luddates of the legal industry as the non-digitally transformed. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely correct in uh, projecting that, you know, it is the allied professionals along with automation, and even API integration that's going to have to come into play to improve the overall process of the uh, legal services. So thanks, Michael, for letting us get you in front of a mic there at Legal Week and have you peer into your crystal ball. Now on to today's guest. Most of us that went to law school thought we were going to end up being some sort of version of a lawyer who practices law. But as evidenced by the two of us, that doesn't always become reality. Today's guest wrote a book where he interviewed 15 law school grads who found themselves in non-traditional but very rewarding careers. We'd like to welcome Adam Pascarella, founder of Second Order Capital Management and the author of the book, Reversed in Part, 15 Law School Grads on Pursuing Non-Traditional Careers. Adam, welcome to the Geek and Review. Greg, Marlene, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. So Adam, before we dive into your book, we wanted to talk a little about your background and how you went from working as a corporate litigator at Baker McKenzie to starting your own capital management company. We've had a few other Penn Law grads on the show before who seem to be very entrepreneurial. Very. <laughs> so is it just something in the water there at Penn that makes grads want to start their own businesses? That's that's certainly possible. I think the connection with the Wharton School, uh, there, there's something there. At least I, I was at Penn from 2011 to 2014. And back then, a lot of the big direct-to-consumer um, companies or startups were being funded. And Warby Parker was one of the, the most notable ones. And That's the right. founders of Warby mm-hmm. Parker came from Penn. So I think maybe there's something to be said about seeing a huge success come from the Wharton School and you know Wharton students and law students thinking they could come up with the next big thing. So 
So I, I do think there is something to that. And, and even when I was at Penn, I, I thought of something similar too. I was interested in the startup world, even while I was in law school. As, as you know, while you're in law school, especially the first year, it's, it's very important to focus on your academics um, and your courses because there's a direct correlation between that and the job, your first job that you receive after graduation. So the stakes are high. I wanted to do the best I could, but I also had this nagging um, itch that I wanted to scratch in the startup world. So I was dabbling with some things on the side. But you know, besides those side projects focused on doing the best job I could at Penn Law School, I, I graduated in 2014 went to Baker McKenzie, and there I was a litigation associate. So mostly worked on general commercial litigation matters. I also did some white-collar defense and antitrust work as well. I practiced there for about two and a half years, and towards the latter half of my short career there, I was thinking of what I wanted my career to look like. What really came back to me was starting my own business, doing my own thing. Maybe it was off the beaten path. I, I didn't know exactly what it would look like, but I didn't really want the traditional path of working at a law firm for six, seven years, becoming a partner, then becoming an equity partner, perhaps of counsel, and then retiring. That, that's something that I didn't really want. I, I think I knew that before I even went into big law, into my first job. So didn't know exactly how my path would play out, but I knew it was something non-traditional. And that's sort of the impetus of why I wrote the book as well. Yeah. Well, I'm just uh, curious, because uh, right now we see a lot of associates that come in and they stay long enough to basically pay off most of their debt and then go do what they really want to do. Mm -hmm. um, was that kind of what you wanted to, or is that kind of what you ended up doing? Yeah, something similar to that. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. No, as long no. as law schools are charging hundreds of thousands of dollars in tuition and you're taking out loans, especially you, you have, to, right. you have you. to live, you, <laughs> you have to almost look out for yourself first. And, and by doing that, you know, you may end up like really liking what you're doing at a big firm and you may end up staying. So there's, I'm not advocating for people just to go there and cut and run once their, their loans are paid off. But that yeah. is a trend certainly um, in the past couple of decades, I would say. And it's most likely going to continue as, as long as law school is expensive as it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, Adam, I, I was looking at your personal website, and there, it's kind of interesting because the the way that you have it laid out, you have three words that that describe you, and the words are professional, curious, and passionate. And so, why those three words, and and how does that describe your personal philosophy? Sure, I can go through them one by one. So, the the first one is professional, and since I graduated from college, I've been in service-based businesses. I've um, been serving clients and serving customers uh, in a service fashion. So what, what you really need to focus on is being as professional as you can. And professional can mean so many different things. But I think it mostly means treating the client or customer like you want to be treated. So that's responding to emails and calls diligently. That's you know giving them a fair price if you have pricing power, if you can control pricing. So being a professional towards my clients, that's 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 an attitude I take towards my day-to-day -day work. Curiosity is is a tenant that I I strongly adhere to and that I follow. Um, I think that you know you can be interested in your job itself, like say a litigation associate. I was I was interested in the work that I was doing, but I think it makes you a better and more interesting worker or associate or whatever if you're studying or looking into adjacent things to what you're working on. So say you could be an oil and gas attorney, for instance, it, if you can study the renewable energy market or the green energy market, that can make you a better oil and gas attorney. So 
following your curiosity, I think, is is an important tenet for, for anyone, whatever you're doing. And so I try to stay curious and and really try to expand my circle of confidence, as they say. And then passion, it's, it's kind of interesting. In, in the course of writing this book, when I spoke with 15 uh, law school graduates, some of the questions that I did ask were, should you follow your passion, especially if you want to leave the law to do something else? And there really isn't a, a clear answer to that. You, you hear people like Mark Cuban say you should follow your effort rather than your passion. There, there's something to be said about that. But there's also something to be said about being genuinely interested in what you're working on. So I try to stay passionate in what I'm doing. I, I've, it, it's interesting. What, one example from the book is Sandra Daniels, who, who's a COO of Thumbtack, which is a, a startup. And he told me that he wasn't inherently interested or passionate about local services, which is what Thumbtack does. The passion kind of grew. It evolved into that. So really what, I, what I'm trying to say here is that I, I try to stay interested in what I'm doing. I'm, I'm passionate about what I do, but I didn't leave the law to pursue some nagging passion that I have. There were some curiosities. There were some things I was interested in, but it wasn't like, oh, I have to do this or that. Right. Yeah. These don't necessarily always stand on their own. You can combine all three of them, it seems like. Yes, absolutely. Was there something in the work that you were doing as a lawyer that that didn't allow you to leverage these three principles or leverage them in a way that you you wanted? Um, I'd say maybe, maybe, especially the the curiosity part. Um, as as you likely know, if you're working in a big law or corporate law environment, the, the work is very demanding, and you're you're expected to put all of your time and effort into the matters that you have on on your plates, and so it doesn't leave as much time as you want to pursue other interests that you may have or other, other curiosities that you may want to pursue. So at the time, like, like I was telling you a couple minutes ago, I was interested in the startup world. I thought there may be something there that I could be a founder, that I could start something. But working at, at a law firm, it's, it's obviously difficult to, to start something on the side. Some firms don't even let you do that uh, if you look at your employment agreement. So that, that, that is one thing that I guess I was deprived of um, and something that I wanted to, to pursue. But overall, I would say that working at my firm allowed me to tap into those three tenants that I spoke about. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to uh, do a side job when you're billing 2,400 hours, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, it's difficult. I, I'm assuming it's possible, but very, very difficult. So, so speaking of the 2,400 hours, um, you know, what are some of the starkest differences that you see owning your own business versus being a practicing lawyer? I mean, I imagine you put in a lot of time uh, as, you know, as a business owner, but, you know, maybe where you put the time or how, or, you know, the things you focus on are are, are a little bit different than when you're, you're practicing. For sure. Yeah. As a business owner, you have to wear so many different hats, especially if you're a small business, you have to not only provide the service in my situation, the, the service that I provide to clients, but also you have to deal with housekeeping matters and sure you can delegate that to freelancers or, or staff, but especially in the early days, you may not have resources to do that. So it, it ends up being on your plate. And that's one of the things that I think legal practice helps with in some respects is, is the time management. You're, you're billing six minute increments at a big law firm and I'm not, I'm not tracking my time like that, but the focus on time management and maximizing your, your output within a certain period of time is, is really important. And it's something that you learn in practice. I just had my, my first baby on uh, Thanksgiving day last year. And that's, uh, that's congratulations. Um, <laughs> thank you. And this, this lesson is even more stark for me is that you're, when your time is so constricted, you need to make the most out of it and actually you end up being more productive. It's kind of funny that way, but going back to what you're saying, it's time management is something. And also, 
I think a bias for action is, is another huge thing. As, as lawyers, we're paid to be analytical. We're paid to sit back, look at case law in my circumstance, look at both sides of an issue, come to some sort of conclusion, write a memo, present it to a client, move on. But when you're an entrepreneur or business owner, you need to take action and action is everything. You can be analytical, especially with the larger decisions. I think it, it helps to be analytical, but for the most part, you have to be much more action oriented. And for some attorneys, especially me at the start, that was difficult. I think of my analytical skills as one of my superpowers. And if you're not able to tap into that all the time, it can be difficult. But the more you do it, the more you, you get used to taking action. Yeah, imagine it's changing gears from being an issue spotter to identify everything that could go wrong to being more of an entrepreneurial uh, thinker and think of the things that, that could go right. So <laughs> Yeah, that too, that too. As attorneys, especially litigators, you're focused on the downside, but as an entrepreneur, it's all upside, right? Like, sure, there are yeah. risks, but, you know, the upsides could be 10x the risk. So that's, that's another yeah. mental model change that you have to make. That's, that's what I've always heard with, with business owners that you're, you're kind of, you're less focused on the risk. You're focused on the, you know, how can we do this or, you know, we can do this. And then on the attorney side, it's, it's much more, it's like, no, 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 you can't do this because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So it's a really a different yeah, and, mindset. And for, for the attorneys listening out there, I think that's something that can make you especially attractive to clients is, is having that that glass half full attitude towards whatever advice you're giving. Now, now, granted, you're being paid to assess risk. There's no doubt about that. But if you can present solutions or, or actions that the client can take to help them achieve their goals, notwithstanding the risk, that's extremely attractive. So something to think about. Well, that uh, brings us now to the book. And uh, it was just released in March, uh, the book called uh, Reversed in Part. So what made you decide that you wanted to write a book where you interview people who were lawyers or law school grads, but decided at some point to take on a new career. What was the impetus behind that? Yeah, it was really to solve um, the, the circumstance or problem that I was facing. I, I wanted to do something different with my career. Didn't know exactly what. Starting a business, like I said, was something that was appealing. But I didn't really know how to go from point A to point B. And granted, the book isn't, isn't exactly that. It's, it's kind of this combination of inspiration and practical steps to get to where you want. But like I was saying, there, there wasn't really a resource that I knew of that could help me in that respect. So I, I spoke with some attorneys that had made the switch. They were practicing attorneys, were doing something else. But I also wanted to see, you know, what else is out there. So if you look in the book, I speak with an artist, I speak with a nonprofit CEO, I speak with venture capitalists. Now, granted, I, I'm not creative at all. I'm not going to become an artist in the future. But I, I wanted to speak with people that had done different things. And you know, no matter what they're doing right now, I think there are lessons and insights that we can take no matter what our career goals are. So it really came from solving a, a personal problem or issue that I was facing when I was in my law firm. And once I got started, I was getting momentum. I was speaking with interesting people and the project kept going along. It, it took me three years. Um, writing a book is no small feat. Um, there, I could have a whole different conversation about that, but it was a problem that I wanted to solve. I, I felt like a lot of attorneys maybe don't say this to each other, but maybe are thinking of doing something different with their careers, but don't really know where to start or, or what to do. So the, the book is, again, both inspirational and provides some practical guidance in certain areas um, if you want to do something else. So you basically use the uh, research for the book as uh, your own coaching and counseling uh, to, to help you along. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely fair. And even in my journey right now, I go back to the book and some of the conversations yeah. I had and, and, and refer to it because there are so many good insights in there. 
Yeah. So it's, it's almost like, like starting a podcast, like in, in, in your shoes mm-hmm. as well. Like it's, you could speak with interesting people about topics that interest you or problems that you're facing. So, you know, it, it's a win-win in that respect. So I, I'm very happy that you wrote this um, first because of, of what you said that, and, and I've, you know, heard this over the course of my career, like a lot of attorneys will, will say, you know, I really wish I could, I could do something else, but they, they really don't know what else they could do. And I think this book kind of opens different opportunities, you know, for them to explore. And similarly, I'm happy that you wrote the book because I do think there are certain, you know, groups of attorneys where if people do something outside of practicing law, if they do something else with their legal education, you know, that that's just, that's odd, (laughs) you know? And I think you, you highlight here that no, there's a lot of people who do this, lots of people that do this. So, you know, you have 15 professionals who left their legal careers that are in the book. And that's including our friends who we've had on the podcast, uh, Richard Hsu and Ayelet Robinson. The careers vary from, you know, business leaders, artists, sports managers, and commentators and policy experts. How did you set out to find the people who had a story to tell for your book? Yeah, so I wanted to get as diverse of an audience as, as possible for, for the book. But to back up a little bit, so so first I was really pursuing my own interests selfishly, like we were we were alluding to a little bit ago. So I wanted to potentially build a business, start a startup. So I thought, hmm. Write right about what you're passionate about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I knew there were attorneys that had done that. But I wanted to start this book project and wanted to help other attorneys that were interested in tech or startups. So I reached out to Keith Raboy, who's a um, who's a partner of Founders Fund, who is a member of the PayPal Mafia, who's involved in a lot of startups. And, and he responded to me, decided to speak with me, and I was off to the races from there. And then from that point, I spoke with a couple other people in the startup world. Like, like I said, Sandra Daniels, who's the CEO of Thumbtack. I spoke with David Hornick, who's also a renowned venture capitalist. So I was kind of startup tech heavy, and then I thought, hmm, I got to diversify this out a little bit. So really, it was a combination of trying to get as broad of an experience as possible in the book, but also pursuing my own interests. And I really do think there are so many different paths that you can take um, being a former lawyer. So I, I couldn't discuss every single career path that there there is out there. The book would be impossibly long. So it shows 15 people, uh, eight women, seven men in uh, different industries and sectors, and went from there. I could create a sequel if I wanted to, but I, I think that <laughs> I think that there's enough knowledge in here that it's, it's a good start for people. How did you get in touch with these these individuals? Like once once you started with the folks that you knew, like you know, how did you get to some of these other ones? Yeah, it was predominantly cold email. Funnily enough, um, wow. I, for I, I think it was <laughs> yeah, all fifteen. Yeah, all fifteen individuals I had no prior experience or relationship with. And I think it really goes to show that if you're trying to do something different, a cold email can actually be super powerful. I, I still use it to this day. And th- there's an art to it. You don't want to be overly spammy or annoying. But if you just have the audacity to reach out to people, you never know what will happen. Like Anthony Scaramucci, I thought was an impossible person to contact. He has such a high profile. But I reached out to his media people and they, direct, they directed me to his assistant. And then I was passed off to someone else. And then eventually I was able to meet him. So I think if you're if you show that you have some value to provide and if you show some common interest with the person you're targeting, your odds are better than you think. So no, ma- no matter what you're trying to do, if you're trying to even go into a different sector or industry and you have no contacts in that sector or industry, just try reaching out to someone. You never know what will happen. 
Yeah, I guess the worst they can say is no or not respond. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and then you get used to rejection, which is uh, yeah. honestly a skill or a trait that's very valuable, especially if you're an author. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> totally. an author and an entrepreneur. Author and entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> if you're trying to create anything, rejection is is in your future. So get used to it. <laughs> Um, well, Adam, one of the things that, that – and um, I had an electronic copy of, of the book, so I did a – I s- scanned it and realized that you never once in the book used the phrase recovering attorney. And before we jumped on, uh, Marlene and I had a discussion on whether or not this is as, as bad a phrase as I make it out to be. But in the whole book, it sounds like you weren't trying to make it sound like practicing law was some type of failure, but rather that was – one experience that helped them, you know, move on to the next career or, or their passion, as we talked about earlier. Did you find any commonalities on what caused these 15 individuals to to leave the practice of law or the idea of pursuing something in the law and then pursue something completely different? I did, yeah. But, but going back to the, the idea of the recovering lawyer, I, I, I agree. I, I think that law school it is kind of a, a technical school. You, you learn how to analyze case law and, and write a, a brief in the CREAC uh, format or, or version, whatever, whatever your, your chosen uh, version is. But there are skills. It, it's a great training route, and you, you develop real skills that you can use in different areas. You, you develop analytical skills, oral advocacy skills, problem-solving skills. So, and, and this really was a reason why I named the book Reversed in Part. You're, you're not totally turning your back on your legal training or experiences or law school entirely. I, I think there are plenty of things that you can apply from your, your past in the law to whatever it is you're doing. So I, I agree that the recovering lawyer or attorney uh, phrase is some, something I don't use. I, I do understand people use it, but I would push back on it slightly. But, but to go back to your question, I think it was mostly people pursuing their curiosities. Uh, again, so... So legal practice, obviously, is very important. Um, I'm sitting on the opposite side of the table. Lawyers are very important to what I do and, and for, for a lot of people, both in the profit and nonprofit world. But it, it is a narrowly defined you know, job. And so people, the 15 interviewees I had, had different interests and they wanted to pursue them. They couldn't pursue those interests in their current line of work. So if you look at someone like Melinda Snodgrass, who, who's an author, she's a very prominent science fiction fantasy author. She was working at Sandia Laboratories in an in-house role. I think she also had a commercial uh, law role. But she wanted to write. And she, as she told me in our interview, she had these characters in her mind that she had to put out onto the paper. She couldn't do that in her law job, so she had to leave. Same thing is true of Sandra Daniels, who's another man I, I referenced. He co-founded Thumbtack while he was in law school, still went to Sullivan and Cromwell, I believe, practiced for two years, and thought, hey, I, I can't work on this opportunity while it's Sullivan and Cromwell, this is really gaining traction. I'm going to regret if I don't leave uh, and, and work on it. So he did it. So I do think it was this pursuit of a curiosity outside of the law that really prompted people to leave. Now, granted, maybe they left for financial reasons or, or there are others that could leave for financial reasons. Like you said, Greg, they may have paid off their loans and thought, hey, I, I hate doing this. I want to do something else. I didn't really have that experience speaking with those 15 interviews interviewees in my book, but I'm sure there are people out there that feel that way. Uh, but, but going back, it, it's just about pursuing something else outside of legal practice. That's, that's the common thread that I saw. So the final chapter of the book is something really fascinating. You title it 25 Key Takeaways. Now, 
Uh, we won't ask you to go through all 25, but <laughs> but but many of them revolve around the concept of know yourself and build and leverage relationships. So in that regard, what are some of the biggest lessons you learned as you were interviewing these amazing people for Reversed in Part? And what are some key things that that you do to know yourself and to build and leverage relationships? Yeah, relationships are are huge, especially if you're trying to do something non-traditional. I really think that if if I were to ask all 15 of these individuals, would you have gotten to where you are if you, you know, submitted your resume on indeed.com or just blindly submitted resumes? They would say absolutely not. It was all based on relationships or 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 hustling too. It was a combination of work and relationships. So those things are absolutely huge. It's it's a common thread I saw amongst all of the people. And one of the individuals that spoke about that most was David Hornick, who is actually featured in Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. He's he's known for for maximizing and maximizing his network and expanding, uh, you know, I've, really providing as much value as he can to his network and trying to meet as many people as possible. Even in my case, he didn't need to pick up the phone or answer my email, but he did because he understands how powerful relationships are. So that's, again, if you're looking to do something different in your career, really try to expand your network and, and leverage your network, no matter what it is you're trying to do. So in my case, I think when, when I was looking at my transition, I, like I said, I didn't really know what to do. So to better know myself, I worked with a career coach and that was actually really helpful. I, I think that as lawyers, we can be really analytical. We can look at all the different sides of an issue. We can issue spots. That's, that's what we're trained to yeah. do in law school. But when you're looking at your own career, you can be so stuck in your head that you're not asking yourself the right questions. And yeah. having a, a nonpartisan third party really probe what it is that you want and make you think about different priorities that you may have is, is really powerful. So a career coach was good. And then my then girlfriend, now wife, was, <laughs> was really helpful in that respect. We, we talk about work all the time, and she's always challenging me and, and making me be the best that I can be. So having a, a loved one or a friend really push you in that respect is, is, is helpful. Yeah, it's always good to have someone you can bounce things off of and and can also give it to you straight. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, someone you trust, someone you trust. Yes, yeah. Are there any general uh, principles or insights that you can share from the book uh, writing process itself? You know, there might be a listener out there that's that's now listening to this thinking that, that you know, they want to write their own book or she may want to create something else as a, you know, side project or side hustles and any insights you can share? Yeah, definitely. I would first recommend reading one book, which is called The War of Arts by Stephen Pressfield. He's a, he's a prominent author. I think he wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance and some other, some oh. other fiction books that are, are well known, but it was, for me, it was one of the most impactful books on the writing or creative process because he defines this, this amorphous idea called resistance. And it's basically resistance is going to stand in your way of creating anything new. And your job to combat resistance is to become a professional. So you need to treat your job of writing like a professional. So in, in that case, that means finding, you know, an hour in your day where you can write, whether that's in the morning or in the evening. It's like treating it like a second job. And granted for lawyers, like we were alluding to a couple minutes ago, that, that can be difficult because your job is all encompassing, especially if you work at a big firm. But if you do want to create something in the world, whether that's a book or a side hustle or something, you need to put in the time and combat resistance. So that's, that's definitely uh, something that's, that's helpful when, when writing a book. And then in the process of writing a book itself, it's also helpful to have a, an audience beforehand. 
I, I think when mm. people are thinking of writing a book, especially working with a publisher, this book is self-published. But if you're working with the publisher, you think the publisher is going to do everything for you. They're going to promote your book to a huge audience. You're going to get in Barnes and Noble and, and all that stuff. And while that may be true, the publisher is really relying on you to do a lot of the work. So if you can create an audience somehow before writing the book, whether that's on, on Twitter or a blog or a YouTube channel, something like that, that's really helpful later on when you're marketing. And it's also helpful when you're testing the concept of the book because you have an audience where you can spitball ideas back and forth and see if there's actual demand for the book. So for this book, I was trying to scratch an old itch that I had. I, I do believe that there are lawyers out there that feel this way, that they want to transition into different careers and do something different. But if you can have a, a large, preferably large audience beforehand and bounce ideas off of them, it really minimizes your risk and maximizes your chances of success for your book. Yeah. So how did you find your audience? Yeah, so I created a – before I wrote the book, I created a course on deciding whether you want to go to law school or not. So that was my little test of – you know, creating an audience, first of all, seeing if I could create value in the law school legal space. And so I created a course. I put it on Udemy, which is one of these course sites, and, and had a blog, wrote on Quora, Medium, these sort of places. There were a couple posts I had about big law that, that got some traction, and I developed a little audience that way. So really, Excellent. as lawyers, we're, we're pretty good writers compared to the general population. So if you want to tap into that, that's, that's helpful. But then there are also people that have developed really good followings on TikTok or, or YouTube, uh, the legal versions of TikTok or YouTube. So what, whatever suits your strengths and interests, I would say build an audience that way and then test if, if there's interest in your book. Yeah, it was funny when you were saying this, I was thinking of stand up. I mean, you know, the, the best performers don't just go and, you know, do their hour long special cold. I mean, they they go to small venues and they test out their material and they see, you know, if, if it's something that's going to take with an audience before they put the final um, product together. So there, there is a lot going on in the world right now. So we wanted to give you a chance to pull out your crystal ball and talk about how you think the legal profession may change over the next five years or so. Uh, what, if anything, can it do to help professional, curious, and passionate lawyers who are entering the legal field enjoy being a lawyer and stay in the profession? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think that one of the most prominent things in my mind is the role of technology in, in the legal field itself. And I'm not as involved as I was back when I was a practicing lawyer, but both as a practicing lawyer and in certain practice areas, there are new innovations and technologies that are really making things interesting. So as, as a former litigation associate, I can't imagine now what research tools there are to, to make your job e easier researching case laws. So as, as a young associate or attorney, I would, I would be really bullish on, on technology and, and learning what all these new platforms can offer, um, both, both to you and your clients. And then in terms of practice areas, it, it seems like crypto is, is just a, a huge thing in the legal field right now. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of unanswered questions that are being addressed, um, both yeah, in, in the NFT stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the yeah. NFT <laughs> stuff and, and mm -hmm. the coins themselves. So if you have any interest in technology, I, I would say as, as a young attorney, definitely d develop some expertise in, in even, a, even a niche in the crypto field. You could be extremely valuable that way. So that's, that's probably what, if I was practicing, that's probably what I'd be doing right now. Yeah. Greg and I both attended a, a session um, and there was a lot of focus on sort of trademark and copyright and around mm -hmm. the NFTs and, and that there was so much opportunity there. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and whether coins can be considered securities. I mean, there's so many unanswered yep. questions yep. that are, yeah. are being addressed and lawyers are, are billing a lot of uh, time and, and money for, for that. So I was going to say un- uncertainty makes a lot of lawyers richer. So. Yeah, that's right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Adam Pascarella, founder of uh, Second Order uh, Capital Management and author of the new book that's just released, Reversed in Part. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to come in and talk with us. It's been fun. Thank you so much, Greg and Marlene. Appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. So, Greg, I think that was a really excellent um, discussion with Adam and yeah. you know, I think very inspirational um, to, to hear these different stories or hear him talk about the different stories that are in his book. And, you know, I hope that that gives some some insight to those who are listening who, you know, may want to pursue a different path. Yeah, and um, I don't think I mentioned. I mean, I mentioned their names, but uh, Richard Shu actually reached out to us and introduced us uh, to Adam That's so that right. we could get him on the on the show. And it was a you know super pleasant surprise because I think we had Ayelet Robinson on the show. She was like on the third or yeah, fourth show. Yeah, she was, it was very really early. early. Mm-hmm. And her, you know her career as as an actress. And, you know, as a former lawyer and now now actress. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was really, really exciting to see her name in the book as yeah, well. Yeah, that so, made me really happy. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know, there was a, a, a number of things that he kind of ticked off on his list. But I think a lot of us, uh, you know, well, you and I are not exactly in traditional legal careers either. True, true, true. And, you know, just this, just this passion, being able to follow it. At some point, I would love to do an, you know, an episode. And I I think we've kind of like nibbled around the edges of it, but, you know, what can law firms do to put more creativity into the work so that you're not losing these people? And I, Mm -hmm. I just don't think we're, I just don't think we're set up to to save these people. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe, maybe we want to have them spread their wings outside, but boy, it'd be nice to have some of these people. It would, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, it would be nice to be able to harness that, that, you know, that creativity and, and use it, you know, within the confines, I should probably confines the wrong word, within the confines of the, of the law, of a law firm, because within the jail cell of the law firm, <laughs> that's not what I said. Um, but you know, within the law firms, um, you know, because I mean, some of the things he said really resonated that, you know, look, if, if you're doing something innovative, you know, you're going to be, you're going to have to deal with rejection on a regular basis. And, you know, he's, he's not wrong in that um, because, mm-hmm. you know, you're trying something new and, and there's always a bit of resistance to that. And, you know, and also what, you know, he was talking about, you know, making the time, um, yeah. you know, when you're starting something new or you're starting a new business that you make the time. And again, that is something that I have heard years ago and it was in re- relation to, to training um, that yeah. look, either there's people that make the time and then there's people that don't make the time. So if it's important to you, you will make the time. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And that's, you know, and I think that's one of the things we've learned about doing, just doing this podcast is you have to set aside the time. It's not just something that just occurs. Right. It's not, so it's not, can, it doesn't magically happen. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> I know I wished it would yes, sometimes, but yes, uh, yes. You know, but that's, that's how it is. So, well, it was a pleasure having Adam Pascarella from Second Order Capital Management and uh, excited for his new book, which is just released called Reversed in Part. 
15 law school grads on pursuing non-traditional careers. So Adam, thank you very much for taking time to talk with us. That was great. And of course, thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen to the Geek and Review podcast. If you enjoy the show, share it with a colleague. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us on social media. I can be found at M on Twitter. And I can be reached at Glambert on Twitter. Or you can leave us a voicemail on the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSicca. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, I will talk with you later. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.